You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. If you would open your Bibles to Hebrews, we are going through the series Jesus is Better here at South Canyon, and uh, we'll be in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Um, I'm wondering if you have ever had buyer's remorse. You ever had buyer's remorse? You thought something would be great, you spent the money and you got it, and then you're like, this is not what I thought it was. So Bree and I, back in 2006, we had just been married not quite a year, and uh, we were in our small little apartment paying off our school, school loans. Uh, I was making a grand total of $27,000 a year. My wife was still student teaching, so paying tuition for that, and uh, she had this broken down 91 Chevy Lumina that had no heat, and so she was driving every day across town to do her student teaching in this freezing cold car that was unreliable, sometimes wouldn't start, and, uh, and I was starting to do seminary as well, and so we decided that we would go and buy a car, and we bought a 2004 Honda Accord with 30,000 miles and took out a $17,000 loan. And so we went ahead and pulled the trigger on that, and then someone paid for us to attend a Dave Ramsey class that next week. I don't know if that was why. They're like, oh, this is not a good start for a guy in ministry. He can't afford to make big financial mistakes. And so uh, we immediately were struck with guilt because, you know, if you know Dave Ramsey, it's like a zero debt kind of thing, and we had just uh, um, thought that we had just sunk ourselves um, with this car loan, and... um, By God's grace, we worked it out, and I actually drove that car here. (laughs) I still have that Honda. It has 208,000 miles, and turned out it ended up being a great purchase. But at the time, we did have some buyer's remorse, and we kind of wondered if we had made a bad decision, if we'd kind of sunk ourselves. And what we have is, in the book of Hebrews, is a, it's actually like a sermon is what it is. The book of Hebrews is a sermon. If you were to just read it, it'd be about 45 minutes long. And it's a sermon by someone we don't know who it is. I think it's Barnabas. But he's writing to some Jewish believers who are beginning to have buyer's remorse when it comes to Jesus. They've come to faith in Jesus Christ. They've, they believe that he is the Messiah. And now it's a lot harder and different than they thought it would be. And they're tempted to go back to what they know. They're tempted to go back to what they knew before. And the author of Hebrews is trying to persuade them that that's a bad idea. That just because following Jesus was a little different than they thought doesn't mean it's wrong and they shouldn't just go back to it. They were beginning to think that maybe they should take their Christian faith back for a refund and and go back to what they know. Their Jewish heritage, their Jewish community. Because when they came to know Jesus, they lost everything. And in the first century, it was tough to be Jewish, but it was even more tough to be Christian. Very, very difficult to be Christian, and they're beginning to doubt whether or not this whole Jesus thing is true. And the author here is trying to persuade them from their own scriptures that Jesus is better than whatever it is that they're tempted to go back to. And so today's message is believe the better message. Believe the better message. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're not tempted to go back to Judaism, but maybe you're tempted to go back to the life that you knew. Maybe you're newer to Christianity and this is not what you thought it was. It's a lot harder than you thought it was. It didn't bring all the things that you were promised. And so my hope today is that if you're there, you're sitting there and you're wondering, 
Is this Jesus thing worth it? Is it really true? Maybe I should just go back to the way life used to be, go back to the people I know. Maybe this is not for me. I hope you'll listen carefully today, and I hope you'll listen carefully through this series because the whole series is that Jesus and the gospel, if it's true, is worth everything and worth whatever it is that you, whatever price you might pay. Maybe you're a child who's grown up in a Christian home and you're not sure you buy this. I hope you'll listen carefully today to not chuck this, to listen carefully to what the author of Hebrews, what God has preserved in his word for us when it comes to our relationship with Jesus and what it's really worth and what God has really done for us. So I want to start in Hebrews chapter 1 because Hebrews chapter 2 really builds on chapter 1. So let me go ahead and read all of chapter 1 and then we'll go into the first nine verses of chapter 2, just to set the context and remind you of what the author is doing in this sermon. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom, he, 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 through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father." And he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your ears will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand, until I make, my, make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Chapter 2, verses one, verse 1 through 9. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see 
everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you that when we come to your word, we hear you speak. So the prayer we just prayed through song for you to speak, O Lord, will be answered because we're reading your word. Lord, I pray that you would take these words and drive them deep into our hearts, that you would transform our lives and help us to know that Jesus is better and Jesus is worth it. In his name we pray, amen. So verses 1 through the first part of verse 3 we see the danger of neglect. We have the first of five warnings in the book of Hebrews. What the author of Hebrews does is he intersperses his application throughout the book. If you read Paul, he gives the instruction at the first half of the book. Then he gives his application in the second half. The author of Hebrews intersperses his application, the things that we're to do or not do. Um, and then he, does a, he also gives more application at the end here. But we have an application based on the superiority of Jesus to angels. We have the danger of neglecting this message. It says, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So verse 1 there, we have the word therefore, which means based on the argument of chapter 1 and what he's laid out, there is a response that's demanded of us. And here it is to not neglect. We must pay much closer attention. And what he's doing is he's doing a comparison. He's doing a comparison. The message about Jesus is so far superior to the message delivered by angels that it requires a more vigilant attention, a, a more deep allegiance. And what he's getting at here is that the message declared by angels is the old covenant. If you were to look in Acts chapter 7, it says this. This is the sermon of Stephen in verse 38 of Acts chapter 7. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness when the angel who spoke to him, meaning Moses, at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers he received living oracles to give to us. He goes on to say in Acts chapter 7, 51 through 53, he says, you stiff-necked people, which is always a great thing to say in a sermon, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and eyes, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And so what he's saying, why he's making this big deal about angels, is that the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was delivered to Moses via angels. You see that through the Old Testament. You see that's the understanding of the New Testament. So he's speaking to these Hebrew believers, these Jewish believers who are tempted to go back to the old covenant mediated by angels. And he's saying, don't do that because there's a new covenant mediated by God himself, God in the flesh. And if God didn't just send a messenger, but sent himself, then that requires a close attention, right? If the president sends you a message 
and he just sends one of his cabinet members, that's a big deal. But if he comes to your doorstep himself, that's a really big deal. And the thing is, is that the old covenant was delivered by angels to Moses, but God himself in Christ brings the new covenant. Therefore, you need to have more vigilance in the message of Jesus than you did with the message of Moses. That's what he's saying here. Is that if the messenger is greater, if, then the message must also be greater because it's coming directly from the source. So he's saying, therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. I, I, I think it's interesting that he uses the word we. We must pay closer attention to it. He's not saying you. He's saying this is true for all of us. All of us have a temptation to drift back to where we were. All of us have a temptation to drift from the gospel. And we have a responsibility together to pay close attention to it. To wake each other up when we need to. Going, hey, you're neglecting the gospel. You're not, you're, you're getting distracted. You're getting pulled away. So there's this we, we together, must give more attention to the message of Jesus than the message of angels. Be excessively devoted to is what it means in the Greek. Obsessively, excessively devoted to. Constantly giving yourself to this message. This, if this message is true then it requires all of us, 100% of our lives. And he says this message that we have heard. So the message is a body of content. This message of Jesus is a message. It is communicated by words. The scriptures say faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith doesn't come by doing, it comes by hearing. This passive receiving of the message of Jesus that then transforms our hearts and makes us alive. It's a message that we must hear and we must not drift from. Now the phrase, lest we drift away from it, is actually a nautical term in Greek. It's a nautical term for a ship where the captain's not paying attention and he misses the dock. He's not paying attention and he misses the port. The whole point is to bring the ship into port and deliver the goods. And what he's saying here is that if you're not careful to give your whole self to this message of Jesus, you are in the middle of a river, not a lake. Life is a river, not a lake. There are currents that will pull you away from Jesus if you're neglectful. There are currents, the world, your sinful nature, Satan himself, who will pull you away from Christ. And so if you're asleep at the wheel... If you're not attending to your soul in the gospel, you will miss the dock. You will miss the port. And so that's the warning right here, is that if this message is true, and if this message is this good, then it demands all of us, and it demands an attentiveness. He seems to be giving the indication that it's possible to drift right back, drift right past salvation. To not bring the boat all the way home. And that's what they're in danger of doing. And that's what we're in danger of. He says we must pay closer attention because this is something that can happen. We can drift right past it. We can drift right past it. So I don't care how much you say you believe. If you're not giving attention to applying the soul, the gospel to your soul, then I really don't know what you mean by belief. I really don't know what you mean by trust. 
if it doesn't consume all of you, you may have missed something. You may have a misunderstanding of what the Bible is saying about repenting and believing. We must cling to Jesus. We must be attentive to bring the, heart, the boat all the way home. It's not works. It's grace. It's the power of God bringing us all the way home. Verse 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was reliable. He's not saying it's false. He's not saying it failed. The point of the Mosaic covenant was to usher in the new covenant to prepare the people for Jesus. For the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. And look, listen to this warning. Every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. If you were unfaithful to the old covenant, there became a consequence, right? There was a consequence for neglecting the old message. What the author is, is, the author, um, what the author is saying is he's arguing from the lesser to the greater. In verse 3, he's going to say, how much more will the retribution be if we neglect this message? And let me just give you one example here. Think of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6-7. There's many examples in the Old Testament where people were received just retribution, harsh retribution for being unfaithful to the revelation God gave them in the Mosaic Covenant. And think of Uzzah in 2 Samuel 6. They just captured the ark back. It got captured by enemies. They went and took it back. They're about to bring it into Jerusalem. It's a joyous day. And as they walked along, they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. Now, the ark was a representation of God's faithfulness, of his presence, of his holiness. And if any man touched the ark, you had to carry it on poles. There were special instructions because this was such an important symbol. This was a, such an important representation of God's unrelenting, perfect, per, perfect holiness that if any man touched it, they would die. And here's what happens. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzziah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. So he's trying to keep it from falling off the cart. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died beside the ark of God. The message, the covenant, the holiness of God in the message delivered by angels was not to be trifled with. There are no exceptions to God's holiness. It's unrelenting. And Uzzah, maybe well-intentioned, thought for some reason that his hand was less dirty, his sinful hand was less dirty than the dirt. And he presumed that he could touch the ark of God, violate the covenant, and not experience retribution, and he was wrong. There's story after story of that in the Old Testament that God is not messing around when it comes to his holiness, when it comes to his message. And what the author of Hebrews here is saying is if there was just retribution for violating that message, how much more to reject Jesus? How much more severe, if you couldn't touch the gold box, could you turn away from the sun? This is a strong warning. Verse 3a, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? 
Uzzah neglected the instruction of God and he died on the spot. What if we neglect the call to repent and believe in Jesus Christ? Do we think we'll escape? It's a far bigger offense. So this is a serious few sentences that the author of Hebrews has just put in front of us. He's not a very good feel-good preacher, is he? (laughs) He's just laid it out in front of them. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, if we drift right by Jesus? If the old covenant had that kind of retribution, how much to see and savor Jesus in some sort of way and then go, nah, not for me. It's a big deal. So he's telling them, don't turn back. Don't have buyer's remorse. You're going to regret it. There is judgment for rejecting Jesus. Inattention leads to drifting. Disobedience leads to retribution. So let me ask you this. What are you in danger of drifting back to? Maybe it's not the Jewish law like it was for these people. But maybe something else. What tempts you to neglect giving your whole self obsessively to Jesus. There's something that's probably coming to your mind. What is that something that's so tempting to turn back on or to, or to, or to, or to just kind of move Jesus to second place for? In Luke 14, Jesus gives a parable about a king who invites a bunch of people to his banquet. And this is a parable about God, that God is offering a banquet, salvation to anyone. And he sends these messengers out. And these people keep having excuses One says, I've bought a yoke of oxen, and I need to try them out, so I can't come to your banquet. Another one says, I just bought a field, and I need to look at it. And so I can't come to the banquet. Another said, I just married my wife, and we've got this, and so I'm going to spend some time with her, and I'm not going to come to the banquet. Now, those are all good things, are they not? Those are all good gifts of God. But if they cause us to miss and neglect the message of Jesus, there's there's a consequence for that. It's not just the sins that pull us away. Sometimes it's the good things that we put above God. So we must pay much closer attention to these things that we've heard. So we've got the danger of neglect. Secondly, we have the declaration of salvation, verses 2 Verses 3, the second half of verse 3 and verse 4. So now he's back to this message, this message that is superior to the message of angels, this message about Jesus, the gospel message. It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this is a bit like a trial. And the author of Hebrews is like, let me call the witnesses to give testimony about the validity of this message of Jesus. You have to render a verdict, and you're the one that's going to experience the consequences. If you turn back on Jesus, there's going to be a consequence. If you believe that the message is true, then there's a consequence for that, a positive consequence. And here's what he says. Let me go ahead and call the witnesses forward. Let me go ahead and make the case. Like, I served on grand jury last year, And we had people come in, police officers, witnesses, all these folks to come in. And we, as the grand jury, had to decide whether or not the case was valid and could move forward to the next stage. The prosecutors had to convince us 
that what they claim had happened had happened and the process had to move forward. And that's kind of what's happening here is that these witnesses are being called forward. Their credibility is on the line for this message of Jesus. And listen to who these four witnesses are. First of all, it's the Lord Jesus is witness number one. It was declared at first by the Lord. So Jesus' credibility is laid on the line for the gospel. He's the first preacher of the gospel. In Mark 1, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Witness number one called to the stand by the author of Hebrews is Jesus Christ himself attesting to the gospel message. Witness number two in the second half of verse three there right at the end, the last phrase. And it was attested to us by those who heard. Witness number two is the apostles and those who were eyewitnesses of Jesus. Yes, Jesus says this gospel message is true. I'm willing to put my credibility behind this. Those who witnessed what Jesus did, those who heard what he taught, said, yes, we'll put our lives on the line. And many of them died for this testimony. But look at witness number three, verse four. While God the Father also bore witness. Witness number three is God the Father himself bearing witness by signs and wonders and various miracles. So God himself steps into the witness box and says, let me give you evidence for why this message about Jesus, the gospel message, is true. All the credibility of Yahweh is behind this message. And then look at witness number four, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his word. The Holy Spirit now comes to the witness stand, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit and those who believe in Christ, gives testimony to the truthfulness of the gospel. So to turn away from this message is to call the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit liars. And the witnesses who went to their death for this. The declaration of salvation by the triune God and those who walked with Jesus. J. Werner Wallace is a man who was a cold case detective featured on Dateline many times very prominent cold case detective who became a believer in Jesus because he investigated the evidence for the truth of Christianity. And here's what he has to say in a blog post, which I just think is fascinating. So this is a longer quote, but hang with me because I think it'll resonate. He said this, Life on this side of my decision hasn't always been easy, speaking of following Jesus. It's been 22 years since I first trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior I still struggle to submit my prideful will to what God would call me to do. Christianity is not easy. It doesn't always work for me. There are times when I think it would be easier to do it the old way. Easier to cut a corner or take a shortcut. There are many times when doing the right thing means doing the most difficult thing possible. There are also times when it seems like non-Christians have it easier and even seem to be winning. It's in times like these that I have to remind myself that I'm not a Christian because it serves my own selfish purposes. I'm not a Christian because it works for me. I had a life prior to Christianity that seemed to be working just fine. And my life as a Christian hasn't always been easy. I'm a Christian because it's true. I'm a Christian because I want to live in a way that reflects the truth. I'm a Christian because my high regard for the truth leaves me no alternative. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's saying, don't turn back. 
Don't sell Jesus back. Don't turn it back because it's true. The triune God has given you evidence. He has given you testimony. There is enough evidence to believe the gospel. So if you neglect the gospel message, you're essentially calling these four witnesses liars. And are you willing to do that? Are you really willing to do that? That's what he's saying. He's warning them. He's trying to expand their wonder of the gospel, but he's also trying to go, hey, you realize how significant this is, right? That to walk away from this is no small thing, right? So there's both a kindness and a, 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 a seriousness in this, right? This is a wonderful message, but it also carries with it a weightiness, a significance. And then he goes to verses 5 through 8, the dominion of humanity. And here he begins to resume his argument. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. So now he returns back to his angels thing. He kind of interweaves all these themes. You'll see that through Hebrews, that he switches topics and somehow weaves all these things together and masterfully. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, which is, I, I find funny, that he's quoting scripture and he's like, it, it says somewhere in the Bible that, you know. I, think, I don't think it's because he's forgetful. I think it's because it really doesn't matter who said it, because God said it, right? He doesn't put his name in the book because it doesn't matter what his name is as the author of this book. This is the word of God. It doesn't matter that David wrote Psalm 8, which is what he's quoting. It matters that God said it through David. David's just the instrument, right? What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he has left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. It's a quote from Psalm 8. And if we went one verse earlier, it was read at the opening of our service today. The psalmist is marveling at creation. He's looking at the world and he says this, When I look at your heavens, space, the cosmos, stars, planets, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet. Isn't that amazing? The, the planets, the solar systems, all of these things, and man is God's favorite creation. Man is the one who was meant to rule all of it. Man is the only one, humanity is the only one that bears his image. And has dominion over these things. And he's marveling at that. I was just in the Grand Tetons last week with my son doing kind of a special trip. And the Grand Tetons, like there's just this, you know, this one giant mountain. I was standing there, I was thinking about this. And I was thinking about this message. And I'm like, that mountain has been there thousands of years before I got here. And I can think of at least five ways that thing could kill me. Right? If I were somehow to get to the top of it, I could be struck by lightning. I could die in an avalanche. I could be eaten by bears. I could uh, freeze to death and, I forget what the other one was, fall. And that mountain is going to be there thousands of years after I die if the Lord tarries. And yet, God regards me of greater value than that mountain. And I have dominion over that mountain because I'm one of God's image bearers. And what he's saying here 
is that humanity does not experience that dominion like he should because of the fall, because of sin. And so the, demand, the dominion of humanity has fallen. It's broken. If, uh, if on one of my hikes in the Grand Tetons, a bear came up to me and I said, hey, I'm an image bearer of God, please don't attack me. Might not work. Because creation's broken. That bear should know not to touch an image bearer of God and to obey him. But they don't. And don't we realize just how small we are? Diseases, infirmities, car crashes, humanity, this little fragile thing God regards so highly. And yet because of our sin, we don't experience the dominion that God gave to us. And a dominion he didn't give to angels. Angels, as glorious as they are, are not in dominion over the world. Humanity is and will be. Angels cannot give you, is what he's telling them, angels cannot give you what is not in their authority to give. God can't. The angels cannot restore your broken humanity. The angels cannot restore your lost inheritance. The angels cannot do that. But there is one, verse 9, who can. The purpose that you were made to live for, all the brokenness that you experience erased, fixed, can only be done by one. And it's not the angels. Look at verse 9, the accomplishment of Jesus. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. It's the first time Jesus is named in the book. He wants to get real specific here because he wants us to see how glorious this is. But we see for a little while that he was made lower than the angels. We just heard that in, in Psalm 8. Jesus became a human being. To fix human beings. To be what we failed to be. To bear what we deserve to bear. We see for him, he was made a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How will the dominion status, the glory of humanity be restored to what it should be? Jesus became a man, lived a perfect life. Everything that Adam lost for us in the garden, Jesus succeeded. Every place that Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. He earned a righteousness before God. He lived perfectly under the law. He was the perfect human who reclaimed by his righteousness what humanity was always meant to be. And then he went to the cross, suffering the suffering of death, And on the cross, he bore the wrath of our sin. He took the penalty for what we failed to be, what Adam lost and deserved to be punished for, what you and I lost as descendants of Adam, Jesus took upon himself. And then he rose again from the dead and he is ascended into heaven. And he is reigning from heaven over the world, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Meaning, Jesus earned a righteousness for you, took a punishment that you deserved, and if you will believe this message, your sins are gone. Your dominion status will be restored in the last days, and you are given the righteous inheritance of Jesus Christ. We are seated with him in the heavenly places. The glory and honor that he has is shared with his brothers and sisters who believe in him. 
Isn't that amazing? Jesus is the new Adam succeeding where the first Adam failed. Jesus bears the penalty of wrath of the old Adam and extends earned righteousness as the new Adam to repentant descendants of the old Adam. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So don't turn away from the gospel. Don't give up now because you're about to rule the whole world with Jesus. Don't give up now. You're so close to the finish line. The hard part's almost over. To go through the loss of following Jesus and then to quit right before you get the reward is ludicrous. Don't we see that in a marathon when you're like, don't quit, the finish line's right there. And that's what he's telling them. You're about to be restored to a Psalm 8 dominion with Jesus over all the world. Don't quit. Friends, this is the better message. God became man, namely Jesus. Jesus lived perfectly under the law and possessed a perfect standing with the Father. Let me just reiterate this. He then willingly, in coordination with the Father and the Spirit, went to the cross to become and to bear the relentless wrath of God against human sin. He did this so that any human being who would repent of their rebellion against God, believe this message, would certainly, legally, permanently be forgiven of all their sins, clothed with the fullness of Christ's righteousness, and guaranteed an irrevocable eternal fellowship with God forever. Not only that, each and every believing human being will be fully restored to the glory and privilege they lost at the fall. I'll stand on that mountain in the Tetons, and it won't kill me. I will be restored to my dominion status. And I'll tell that bear to get away. (laughs) And he'll obey me. Revelation 5, 9, and 10, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Don't turn back. Don't have buyer's remorse. You're almost there. So, bottom line, three reasons why you must stay vigilant and faithful to the message of the gospel. The punishment for neglect and desertion is really severe. The witnesses are perfect, compelling, and more than sufficient for you to believe. And number three, the lost glory of humanity is regained only by the perfect work of Christ. You won't get it anywhere else. You won't get it by eating healthy. You won't get it by certain election going your way. You won't get it by having a wonderful family. You won't regain the glory you're longing for anywhere but in Jesus. And he purchased it for you. And it's yours if you'll take it. So a conclusion. I'm almost done, I promise. A question. Are you neglecting the gospel? Has it somehow fallen? Has it it somehow kind of been pushed to the side? It's not like you deny it. But it's just not that interesting. It's just not that helpful. Be careful. C.S. Lewis says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. It's either at the center or it's not there at all. 
This is why I read so many books. This is why I listen to so many podcasts as I feel the drift in my own heart. That if I don't hear hours of sermons every day, if I don't read lots of books, my heart drifts too fast. If I don't have a Bible reading plan, part of the reason why we're adopting from Haiti is I don't want to neglect the gospel. God adopted me and it called me to adopt. What am I going to do, neglect that? I don't have any authority to tell God no. Plant a church, why we host a small group, part of it's for me. I don't want to neglect the gospel and I need things that keep me in line. I need things that push me forward. And I'm guessing you're probably the same way too, maybe in different ways. God has called you to obedience in certain ways. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. Are you believing the testimony? Maybe you've never heard the gospel in this way. And I pray that today would be the day of salvation for you. That you would take hold of these promises, that you would believe the better message. And lastly, are you marveling at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done? Isn't this amazing? You couldn't make this up. You couldn't make up a better story. You couldn't make up a better religion. And the thing is, is it's true. God puts his entire credibility behind it. At Redeeming Grace Church, we, our mission statement is we enjoy, we exist to enjoy, display, and share God's redeeming grace with the world. What a privilege to savor Jesus and all that he's bought for us. To display in our love for one another the beauty of this gospel to the world. Look, it's actually changing people and making them loving in ways that can't be explained. And then we want to share this with the world. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you for this glorious message. And Lord, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe it. We thank you, Lord, for these nine verses towards the end of our Bibles, preached by someone we don't even know who it is, but preserved by your Holy Spirit for us. Lord, I pray that if there is anything in us that is thinking about leaving Jesus, or if there's anything in us that is wanting to push him just to kind of the side, put something else in first place for a while, I pray, Lord, that you would graciously convict us of that and that we would happily, not out of guilt, but happily repent because there's greater joy in Jesus than anything else that we could substitute him for. Lord, I pray that today someone would turn from their sin and trust in this Jesus and receive all that you have worked so hard to provide for us freely. Help us not to neglect it, Lord. Help us not to drift past it. Help us to take hold of it and make it the center of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.